welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Greetings! Well, we're in the triple digits on episodes now. No going back. And I hope you had a chance to listen to the interview with Betty Stevens. If not, stop what you're doing and give it a listen. The future is Article 1. Also worth noting, at the end of the day on Friday, the Ninth Circuit decided to go in banc on Diaz Rodriguez v. Garland, that groundbreaking decision on crimes of child abuse, abandonment, or neglect. Now, I'm not going to lie. I did state on episode 72 that, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if the Ninth Circuit goes in banc on the issue, end quote. So my vanity rejoices. But my love of friendly non-citizen precedent does not. See you again sometime soon, Mr. Diaz Rodriguez. Here's what we've got this week. Starting off, we have Gonzalez Aguilar v. Garland, published by the Tenth Circuit on March 29, 2022. This case is about transgender asylum seekers. Miss Gonzalez Aguilar, quote, was born a male and named Oscar, end quote, but displayed feminine qualities from an early age. She is, quote, a transgender woman from Honduras, end quote. For these reasons, Miss Gonzalez Aguilar was beaten violently by her uncle for years as a child. She fled to Mexico at 12 in search of her mother, where she was similarly abused. She fled to the U.S., changed her name to Kelly, and now takes hormone treatment. She applied for asylum and related relief in the U.S., but the IJ and the BIA denied. However, a split Tenth Circuit panel reversed and remanded. The Tenth Circuit took the issues one by one, so I will too. First, the Tenth Circuit agreed with the BIA that Ms. Gonzalez Aguilar's gender was not one central reason for her uncle's beatings. And that's because the uncle beat both Ms. Gonzalez Aguilar and her sister and her brother, and appears to have just been generally a horrible, unpleasant, violent man. And that means that the past beatings, violent and terrible as they may have been, can't be past persecution, because the beatings and abuse lacked a nexus to a protected ground. 
Luis Gonzalez Aguilar was also apparently expelled from school and bullied in school as a child because of her gender. But she also apparently didn't argue that this constituted past persecution before the BIA, so the Tenth Circuit believed that it couldn't consider the argument. However, and here's your giant holding worthy of this week's lead case, the Tenth Circuit held that Ms. Gonzalez Aguilar established that there exists a, quote, pattern or practice of persecution against transgender adults in Honduras, end quote. That means that essentially, non-citizens in the Tenth Circuit, and maybe elsewhere as well, need only show that they are from Honduras and are transgender. If they show those two things, they should be due asylum or withholding of removal unless DHS meets its burden to establish otherwise on a case-by-case basis. At least until DHS proves that things have changed in Honduras. Bigly. And that's because under immigration law, an individual can establish a well-founded fear of future persecution even if they can't establish that they themselves are at individualized risk if there exists a pattern or practice of persecution against the entire group. Think a Tutsi from Rwanda living in the U.S. during the genocide who had never himself been threatened or harmed in Rwanda. But I mean, come on, right? We all know that they probably shouldn't go back to Rwanda. Quote, a pattern or practice exists when the persecution is systemic or pervasive. End quote. Do you doubt me on the expansiveness of this decision? Don't. Quote, the acts of violence are so widespread that any reasonable adjudicator would find a pattern or practice of persecution against transgender women in Honduras, end quote. Oh, and by the way, apparently the Third Circuit similarly held for Ghana in Dovey Attorney General of the U.S. in 2020, BP, and the Ninth Circuit did for a similar group from Jamaica in Bromfield v. Mukasey in 2008. Back to the Tenth Circuit, it didn't matter to the majority, as it does to the dissent, that the 2016 Department of State report indicates that LGBTQ groups are working with the Honduran government, that Honduras added 30 new agents to investigate violence against LGBTQ individuals, or that law enforcement is educating personnel on the issue. Go on, Tenth Circuit. While such efforts say little about the, quote, widespread persecution of transgender women in Honduras, end quote at least in practice. Plus, with logic rarely used but which is just so sweet, these extra government efforts actually, quote, confirm the rampant violence, end quote. Else, why would the efforts be needed? Nor does the Tenth Circuit believe that its conclusion is negated by the fact that Honduras passed some laws to prevent discrimination against transgender individuals, because, quote, when determining whether the persecution is systemic or pervasive, we must consider the effectiveness of these measures, end quote. And the Tenth Circuit does not believe the measures effective. That's it. I'm moving to Utah or some other mountain state in the Tenth. The court distinguished some unpublished 11th Circuit decisions and a published 3rd Circuit one, and remanded, stating that the record as a whole compels a pattern or practice finding. Counsel, if you're listening, please send out that record as a whole to Ayla's listserv. Congratulations, Nicole Henning and Denise Diaquila of Jones Day, in addition to Karen Zweck and Tanya Linares-Garcia of the National Immigrant Justice Center. What a win. And congratulations to named expert witness, Dr. Ubaldo Herrera Coelho. I may come calling soon. Judge Carson concurred and dissented, reading the record as a whole differently than the majority. Could there possibly be more? (music) 
Props to the Tenth Circuit for taking pains to be very intentional with its language and doing its best to accommodate evolving understandings of gender. As it starts off in a footnote by stating, quote, We use those pronouns for the time that she was publicly identified as a transgender woman. In describing Kelly during her early years as a boy named Oscar, we mean no disrespect, end quote. And finally, here's a quote about the Department of State report that can pretty much be used in like 50% of the countries analyzed by the Department of State. Quote, Given the country report's assessment of the ongoing and pervasive societal violence, taking place with widespread impunity because of corruption in the Honduran government's investigative, prosecutorial, and judicial systems, we do not see how a fact-finder could reasonably question a pattern or practice of persecution based on the assignment of 30 more agents or new educational efforts, end quote. So widespread corruption can undermine what appears to be a government's attempt to deal with harm happening to a group. And widespread corruption doesn't necessarily undermine a nexus finding, even though it's happening to everyone, because it shows that a country's government can't stop the persecution that other evidence shows is occurring to a specific group. That's the case even if the evidence shows that the government is kind of trying to stop the harm, because the standard is unable or unwilling to protect. And that is Gonzalez Aguilar v. Garland. Next is Matter of S. Wong, published by the BIA. This is a wonky one about just what is a conviction under immigration law, a question that has seemed to vex everyone since the definition was changed 25 years ago. INA Section 101A48A defines as a conviction for immigration purposes a, quote, formal judgment of guilt entered by a court, end quote. Sounds simple enough, right? Mr. Wong is a native of Hong Kong and a citizen of the People's Republic of China, admitted to the U.S. as a lawful permanent resident in 1979. He didn't naturalize and in 2005 pled guilty to the disorderly person's offense of theft by deception in violation of Section 2C colon 20-4A of the New Jersey Statutes. Then in 2006, he was convicted of forgery in the second degree in violation of Section 170.10 of the New York Penal Law. If both are crimes involving moral turpitude convictions, Mr. Wong is removable for having been convicted of two or more CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme, pursuant to INA Section 237A2AII. An immigration judge sustained the charge, and Mr. Wong appealed. The BIA affirmed, Mr. Wong petitioned for review to the Second Circuit, the Second Circuit remanded, the BIA remanded, the IJ ruled again against Mr. Wong, the BIA again affirmed, the Second Circuit again remanded, and now it's back before the BIA. And the issue is as follows. Mr. Wong primarily argues that the New Jersey judgment is not a conviction under immigration law. Unlike in the inadmissibility context, the CIMT grounds of removability, including INA Section 237A2AII, require a conviction, not just the admission to the commission of conduct. So, no conviction for immigration purposes, no removability. The reason no conviction, Mr. Wong argued, is because, quote, a disorderly person's offense in New Jersey does not carry a right to an indictment by a grand jury or the right to a jury trial and that the class of offense does not give rise to any legal disability or legal disadvantage as a conviction for a crime under New Jersey law does, end quote. 
Plus, Mr. Wong argued, quote, disorderly persons offenses are petty offenses and are not crimes within the meaning of the New Jersey Constitution, end quote. In layman's terms, there's a big difference between a traffic citation and a murder conviction, for example. While the latter is certainly a conviction for immigration purposes, the former, and things like it, might not be. Now, although the INA defines a conviction for immigration purposes to be a formal judgment of guilt, the BIA explained in the 2004 decision, Matter of Al-Samizar, that the definition includes a, quote, judgment in a trial or other proceedings whose purpose is to determine whether the accused committed a crime and which provides the constitutional safeguards normally attendant upon a criminal adjudication, end quote. What does that mean? Well, first, one of the elements that the BIA has historically believed was required to be an immigration conviction is that the state proceedings require, quote, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, end quote. Second, historically, the BIA has held that the judgment must have been entered in a, quote, genuine criminal proceeding, that is, a proceeding that was criminal in nature under the governing laws of the prosecuting jurisdiction, end quote. But the BIA believes that a bit of a vague term, and I guess the Second Circuit did as well. And so in this decision, the BIA cleaned it up a bit and explained what it believes a state judgment must have to be an immigration conviction. The quote, minimum protections include proof beyond a reasonable doubt and the rights to confront one's accusers, a speedy and public trial, notice of the accusations, compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in one's favor, and against being put in jeopardy twice for the same offense, end quote. Those rights that the BIA mentioned that I mentioned are the, quote, constitutional floor of criminal procedure, end quote. And so the BIA has chosen to incorporate this floor as the immigration definition for a conviction. This floor does not include many rights commonly taken for granted by U.S. citizens, such as the right to a jury trial, the right to indictment, or the right to counsel, because those rights, for constitutional purposes, are contingent on the severity of the criminal charge. And because it's this floor that matters, the BIA does not believe that it needs to, quote, consider other aspects of state law, end quote, to determine whether the proceedings in New Jersey are sufficient to attach immigration conviction consequences. Such as, say, whether the judgment can be used for impeachment purposes in a state, whether it constitutes a conviction for sentence enhancement purposes in a state, or whether it would disqualify someone for elected office in a state. All irrelevant according to the BIA, for INA Section 101A48A, Definition of a Conviction Purposes. Applying all that to the New Jersey disorderly persons offense, the BIA concluded that satisfactory constitutional safeguards exist for the judgment to be a conviction for immigration purposes, to meet that constitutional floor. Perhaps most importantly to the BIA, quote, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is required by statute, end quote and likely devastating to many future similar challenges in other states, quote, the remaining rights, confrontation, speedy trial, public trial, notice of accusations, compulsory process, and double jeopardy, are guaranteed by the state constitution, end quote. I find it likely that many states have those bare minimum protections for their criminal or quasi-criminal proceedings. And even though New Jersey apparently doesn't categorize this offense as a crime under its laws, quote, how the state defines or labels the offense may be useful but is not dispositive, end quote. 
The focus is instead on whether sufficient constitutional procedural safeguards are employed and whether judgment, quote, exposes the accused to criminal penalties, end quote. So, having lost the conviction argument, Mr. Wong also argued that no matter, the New Jersey statute doesn't match the federal definition of a CIMT, because the conviction doesn't require proof of a, quote, intent to permanently deprive the owner of possession, end quote, as theft-based CIMTs do require. But, said the BIA, Mr. Wong was convicted of theft by deception, which is a fraud-type crime, and so it's a CIMT with or without the theft element, because it's a fraud-type crime, not just a theft-type crime. Finally, the BIA also held that forgery in the second degree in violation of New York Penal Law Section 170.10 was also a CIMT, because the crime always involves either fraud or an intent to injure another, which are both usually turpitudinous activities. I'd like to see a bit more analysis, though, and I wonder if the issue can be challenged another way directly in another case where this whole conviction issue isn't so prominent. Anyway, with two CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct, Mr. Wong is removable. So the appeal was dismissed. It's a long one, but some qualifiers are in order. First, it looks like the circuits are a bit all over the place on matter of Aslamazar and this whole conviction issue, so don't take anything for granted and research your circuit. It looks like the 8th and the 10th circuits, at least, are pretty deferential to the BIA on this, but I don't know about other circuits, nor, based on how the BIA is framing the dispute, am I sure that the 2nd or 3rd circuit will agree with the BIA when eventually forced to readdress this very New Jersey statute, possibly on direct petition for review in this case. Also, while this decision appears to cover a fair amount of state proceedings with its definition of conviction, it's important to remember here that the BIA expressly does not, quote, address the requirements for foreign convictions to qualify as convictions under Section 101A48, end quote. So that's something. And fair enough. But it seems to me that, footnote notwithstanding, there's an argument to be made based on this decision that foreign judgments that don't meet the floor-level protections of the U.S. Constitution cannot be convictions under immigration law. A non-frivolous argument. And finally, for good measure, it looks like Mr. Wong also received a conviction in 1988 for conspiracy to import heroin, but received a former Section 212C waiver and got to keep his green card way back when. Ah, former Section 212C. And that is matter of S. Wong. So that was a bit of a monster. Next is a very short one, Jama v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on March 30th, 2022. This one is about Convention Against Torture Protection. Mr. Jama entered the U.S. in 1996 from Somalia as a refugee. He probably could have adjusted and naturalized at some point, but he didn't, and he obtained criminal convictions. Because he hadn't naturalized, those convictions made him removable and ineligible for all forms of relief and protection, except deferral of removal, under the CAT. In support, he claimed that he'd converted to Christianity in the U.S., that he had related tattoos, that he speaks limited Somali or Pidgin Somali that he has a criminal record, and that he suffers from a mental illness. As a result, he feared that members of his clan, the Awartabal clan, and apologies if I mispronounce that, would torture him, as would the Somali government, because his brother had joined ISIS, 
and his stepbrother had joined al-Shabaab. He also feared torture by other clans. The immigration judge didn't believe Mr. Jama and denied his case based on an adverse credibility finding. The IJ also appeared to deny the claims on the merits for Mr. Jama's failure to meet his evidentiary burden. The BIA affirmed on the merits. It declined to reach the adverse credibility issue. The Eighth Circuit affirmed as well. It agreed with the BIA that the adverse credibility finding was an alternative ground for denying cat protection, rather than central to the IJ's decision. Because in the IJ's decision, the IJ assumed, at some points at least, that Mr. Jama was indeed, for example, a Christian, but that nevertheless his cat claim had failed. As such, the BIA was allowed to affirm the IJ without touching the adverse credibility finding one way or the other. Because IJs only need one reason to deny relief or for that matter, to find a non-citizen removable. The Eighth Circuit also held that in adopting the IJ's decision, the BIA sufficiently explained its decision affirming the IJ's finding that Mr. Jama failed to meet his burden of proof. As Mr. Jama really only challenged some of the procedural aspects of the BIA's review, and did not argue before the Eighth Circuit that the evidence was so strong that any reasonable adjudicator needed to grant him cat deferral, the Eighth Circuit denied the petition for review. And that is Jama V. Garland. Next is Paredes Gonzalez V. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on April 1st, 2022. No fooling. This is another Eighth Circuit decision on cat protection. But it's a bit more complicated. And it's the first podcast case on Bolivia. That's where the Paradise Gonzalez brothers, the petitioners here, are from. They operated a company in Bolivia and came to the U.S. on temporary visas in 2015, where they applied for asylum. They claimed that many of the investors in their company were former Bolivian military and government officials, and that those investors were unhappy with the company, and that those investors were threatening to harm the brothers. Perhaps due to the high profile of the investors, Bolivia charged the brothers with fraud and issued warrants for their arrest in June of 2015, and Bolivia even obtained Interpol red notices for their arrest in the U.S., kind of like international arrest warrants. Remember, though, even the Department of Justice says red notices don't equate to probable cause that a crime has been committed. Anyway, it all sounds like a Miami case to me. But it's not. It's an Eighth Circuit case. USCIS referred the asylum applications to immigration court, where an immigration judge found that the brothers were not credible and denied their applications in 2020. The BIA affirmed, and the BIA denied a motion to remand filed by the brothers, it appears, based on the fact that the charges may have been dismissed in Bolivia while the matter was on appeal to the BIA. On petition for review, the brothers challenged only the denial of Convention Against Torture Protection, and the Eighth Circuit affirmed the BIA. But first, the court denied the brothers' motion to send the case back to the BIA. See, during the petition for review, the brothers also managed to get Interpol to delete the red notices, an important thing for non-citizens to pursue in such cases. And there was meat to the motion here. The IJ seems to have placed a lot of weight on the fact that Bolivian charges and an Interpol red notice existed at the time that the brothers were applying for relief and protection. The Eighth Circuit, however, didn't put as much weight on the fact that Interpol had deleted the red notices as the brothers did. 
The Eighth Circuit believes that Interpol deleted the notices for reasons more technical than substantive, and so, quote, Interpol's decision to delete the red notices cannot be construed as offering an opinion on the merits of the criminal proceedings against the brothers, end quote. Moreover, even if important to some of the IJ's decision, the Eighth Circuit didn't believe it part of the IJ's adverse credibility finding. So why, the court postulated, would a remand be in order? Plus, according to the Eighth Circuit, whether the red notices exist or not is, quote, not material to the dispositive issues on review, which turn on the likelihood of enduring torture upon removal to Bolivia, end quote. Turning then to that question and the merits of the adverse credibility finding as well. The Eighth Circuit held that yes, there were, quote, significant discrepancies, end quote, between the initial asylum applications and the brothers' 2020 in-court testimony, particularly some alleged violent attacks omitted from the initial application. Nor could the brothers provide important details about the alleged ringleader that they most feared. Nor did the brothers provide sufficient business records or consistent testimony regarding specifics of their business, a business that was really the basis for their application for protection in the first place. With the adverse credibility findings sustained, the brothers had a very steep mountain to climb to nevertheless obtain cat protection, and they did not succeed. They essentially claimed that their detention on criminal charges was a near certainty upon their return to Bolivia, and that they'd be tortured in prison. But, quote, it is not enough to allege that prison conditions constitute torture when they are the result of neglect and underfunding, rather than intentional and targeted, end quote. That's what the Eighth Circuit believed the brothers' evidence and argument showed here. So, the Eighth Circuit denied the petition. One final observation. If, as the Eighth Circuit believes, the deletion of red notices by Interpol shouldn't mean much regarding whether the subjects committed criminal offenses abroad, shouldn't it also follow that the existence of red notices similarly does not mean that much? For another time and another case, I suppose. And that is Paradise Gonzalez v. Garland. That brings us to Kakar v. USCIS, published by the Second Circuit on March 28, 2022. This case is about the terrorism grounds of an admissibility, namely the weapons bar, and it follows a pattern that we seem to be seeing more and more regularly. Mr. Kakar is from Afghanistan and entered the U.S. in 1999, where he applied for asylum based on his fear of the Taliban and his Shia Muslim religion. He claimed that the Taliban members, quote, abducted him from his home, detained him at a Taliban base, and forced him to cook clean and wash their clothes. The Taliban once forced him to take a gun and fight against the opposition forces of Ahmed Shah Massoud, the leader of an armed group fighting the Taliban, end quote. He escaped after about a month and fled for the U.S. Essentially for this reason, an immigration judge granted Mr. Kakar asylum in 2000. In January 2006, Mr. Kakar applied for adjustment of status under the Special Provisions for Asylees, INA Section 209. His application remained unadjudicated for reasons unexplained, and in December 2007, almost two years later, Congress designated the Taliban as a terrorist organization. Seven years later, and still unadjudicated, USCIS issued a notice of intent to deny, stating that notwithstanding the prior grant of asylum, USCIS believed that Mr. Kakar was, quote, inadmissible for lawful permanent resident status because he had engaged in terrorist activities related to the Taliban, 
end quote. Ultimately, USCIS denied the application in 2016. In that denial, USCIS concluded that Mr. Kakar's, quote, use of a weapon on the Taliban's behalf rendered him inadmissible under the weapons bar, end quote, under INA section 212A3B-IIIV. And that was because, quote, he used the weapon with intent to endanger one or more individuals, end quote. USAS rejected Mr. Kakar's argument that he should not be barred because he only did so under duress, i.e. because the Taliban would kill him if he hadn't fought. And that's because USAS believed that there is no duress exception to the terrorism bars. Same with the cooking and cleaning. USAS believed that this constituted material support of a terrorist group, the Taliban, as designated nine years after the event, and that there was no duress or de minimis exception to this incredibly broad removability provision. And by the way, that separate material support bar is that INA section 212A3B-IV-VI. Unsatisfied with this decision, Mr. Kakar brought an Administrative Procedure Act action in federal court against USCIS, arguing among other things that, quote, application of the weapons bar was arbitrary and capricious because the bar's precondition that his acts must have been unlawful under Afghan or U.S. law had not been met, end quote. The federal district judge granted USCIS's motion for summary judgment. But the Second Circuit remanded. When challenged in federal court, quote, an agency action is arbitrary and capricious if the agency has relied on factors which Congress has not intended it to consider, entirely failed to consider an important aspect of the problem, offered an explanation for its decision that runs counter to the evidence, or is so implausible that it could not be ascribed to a difference in view or the product of agency expertise, end quote. And when challenged, a district court can't uphold USCIS's decision based on reasons USCIS didn't itself rely on. The DOJ attorney defending the decision in federal court can't use arguments that USCIS itself didn't use. That's the Supreme Court's Chenery Doctrine. And here, the Second Circuit didn't believe USCIS adequately addressed the weapons bar issue. USCIS relied on the fact that Mr. Kakar used a weapon on behalf of the Taliban. Fine. But, quote, that finding is not enough. At best, it solves only a small part of the equation, end quote. The use of the weapon must additionally be unlawful, either in the country where it occurred or in the U.S., to even potentially satisfy the inadmissibility terrorism provision for using a weapon. And in this case, quote, there was no record evidence concerning Afghan law, end quote. So the dispute came down to whether it was illegal to do what Mr. Kakar did under U.S. law. On that issue, the district court had found that the element was met by determining that, quote, the use of a military-grade weapon to oppress a religious group or to advance one religion in order to suppress another would be manifestly unlawful under the laws of the United States, end quote. That's what the district court judge thought Mr. Kakar was doing on behalf of the Taliban. But see, USCIS never made any such finding in its denial. The U.S. government made the argument for the first time before the district court. And that's a post-hoc rationale that violates the Chenry Doctrine, a logic affirmed recently, by the way, in the Supreme Court's 2020 DACA decision. So, the Second Circuit sent it back for USCIS's violation of the APA, with instructions for the district court to send it back to USCIS for further analysis. One more large observation noted under duress.
I am a bit confused and, to be honest, not overly optimistic about remand. Because it appears that USCIS will be able to, at a minimum, issue a new decision conducting the full analysis, and that that analysis may indeed show that what Mr. Kakar did was illegal under U.S. law. Plus, didn't USCIS have an alternative holding based on application of the material support bar? Unaddressed here. But anyway, and then again, and quite interestingly, the Second Circuit held that, quote, no matter how one conceives Mr. Kakar's conduct, USCIS has never addressed Mr. Kakar's affirmative defense of duress, which we have explained negates a conclusion of guilt based on defendant's otherwise culpable conduct, end quote. And it possibly negates, quote, the unlawfulness of the underlying conduct if it had occurred in the United States, end quote. If that truly is what the Second Circuit is broadly saying about the terrorism bars, it's in contradiction to the BIA's very harsh decision in the 2016 case, matter of MHZ, where the BIA held that the terrorism bars do not, quote, include an implied exception for a non-citizen who has provided material support to a terrorist organization under duress, end quote. And the Second Circuit does distinguish matter of MHZ in a footnote, holding that even if that decision is owed deference, and the Second Circuit doesn't say, quote, the text of the weapons bar includes an explicit intent requirement, and that the act be unlawful, end quote. Both of which distinguish the weapons bar from the material support terrorism bar. So it is definitely not a stretch to say that the duress exception seems resurrected in the Second Circuit, at least to some aspects of the terrorism inadmissibility provisions, the weapons bar. And that's big stuff. Finally, in a footnote that just gets me giddy, counsel for USCIS before the Second Circuit, i.e. the Department of Justice, stated that, quote, she believed that Mr. Kakar could raise a race judicata argument before the agency on remand, end quote. After all, an IJ did already grant asylum, something the IJ could not have done if the IJ had believed Mr. Kakar inadmissible. My favorite type of argument. And that is Kakar v. USCIS. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Immigration Review.